Exodus 29, and then uh, also kind of put a marker or something in Hebrews chapter 10, because we're going to be jumping over to Hebrews chapter 10 pretty shortly. Exodus 29. So sometimes, sometimes when we approach scripture, we kind of approach it as a caricature. We make it into something we want it to be, and then we come to it expecting it to be that thing for us, that thing we want it to be. So, uh, so I'll kind of explain to you what this looked like for me. Early on, as I started reading the Bible, what I told myself, the message that I told myself is scripture is a comfort. It brings peace, right? Like that's what it exists for. So because that was kind of the only thing I knew about scripture, uh, that kind of gave me two problems. Number one, I would only really read scripture when I was looking for comfort, Right, so so, and I kind of did this like uh, Bible roulette thing, where you know, whenever I was feeling distressed or whatever, I would just kind of like, okay, I'm going to open my uh, my hand up to a passage of scripture and put my finger down, and it just so happened, and, and the Lord smote the people that day. Right, like that is not comforting, right? But uh, so so, I would only read scripture when I was looking for comfort. But then there's another problem with that which is that whole swaths of the Bible become irrelevant if all I approach scripture for is comfort. So, okay, so then later on, uh, kind of the message that I believed about scripture was that, okay, well, scripture's kind of an instruction manual. Like, it's a manual to tell me how to live a better life. And so, if I approach it like that, there are still two problems with that. Number one... There are a lot of life situations that I encounter personally that actually scripture doesn't speak directly to at all, right? So, so I'm looking for something uh, that scripture is not designed to give me. And number two, there is a lot of scripture that actually doesn't speak directly to how I should live, right? Like it's trying to give me a story. It's trying to instruct me in something about God, but it's not telling me directly what I should live. So, so here's the problem. My perspective on scripture at those various points made me approach it with an agenda. And my agenda made me approach God on my terms rather than being shaped and formed by his terms. Right, so why point this out? Because there are massive portions of scripture that are very um, offensive to our sensibilities. Like, there are ways that we are shaped and formed in the current culture that we live in, that when we run across certain parts of Scripture, and we actually deal with them for what they truly say, it, it offends us, it bothers us, it makes us uncomfortable. And so if we come to Scripture with an agenda, we will, uh, number one, never actually read those parts because they don't give us what we're looking for. Or number two, we'll miss what's actually happening in them because they don't speak to the specific thing that we're seeking. So today, we are dealing with a concept that is offensive to our sensibilities. And I don't want us to miss what's happening when we walk into this. So I'm going to pray that the Lord would open our hearts and make us receptive to what he has to show us this morning. So would you pray with me, please? God, I give you great glory for what you accomplished yesterday. That we we got to watch you work. We know uh, kind of intellectually that we worship the God who controls the skies and uh, has his hand on the weather. Uh, 
But Lord, to experience that yesterday is a whole different category. So thank you for that. Lord, you are the same God who speaks into scripture, who breathes out scripture for us. Let us not come to it with an agenda. Let us not come to it to be entertained. Uh, But Lord, let us come to it to receive and be shaped by it. Lord, you speak that you might shape us. So make our hearts receptive. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in our last series in the book of Exodus. We just have two weeks left in this series called The Tabernacle. And this morning, I kind of want to put us in the shoes of the average Israelite and grasp the relationship that they had with the tabernacle, with their worship. So, so if you're relatively new, uh, the tabernacle is the place where God dwelt. It's the place where God put his presence. And, and the tabernacle was portable. They carried it around the desert with them. It would have moved with the Israelites. This was the means by which God was going to go among his people. So eventually, after the Israelites got into the land, what they would do is they'd take that tabernacle and they'd put it inside a temple. So... So uh, this concept of the tabernacle, there was kind of a way that the majority of people encountered God at the tabernacle. Like we get this idea of, yeah, God was with them and that's really good and exciting, but, but we, I, I kind of want to take us out of having the whole picture of what the tabernacle was and what it was supposed to function for. And I want to take us and make our kind of picture of this situation a little smaller. I want to put us in the shoes of the average Israelite and what they experienced as they worshipped at the tabernacle, as they encountered God. So in order to do this, we're actually going to, we're going to visibly rebuild the tabernacle from the inside out. Um, so, so let's start with kind of the central piece of the tabernacle. The central piece of the tabernacle, do we have the picture of the ark in there. There should have been one before it. If it's not there, that's okay. Okay, so uh, inside the tabernacle, there's this ark. In that ark, there are these cherubim. They're like these massive heavenly warriors, and they have wings. Those wings extend together and touch right in the middle of the lid of the ark. And then, like, in that place where the wings touch between these heavenly warriors is the place where God's glory dwelt. That is kind of, if we could say in the whole tabernacle where God was, it was kind of like he located himself in that place. That ark is inside this thing called the most holy place. And in that most holy place, there is this thing in front called a veil. So, so the veil covered the most holy place. You could, there was only one person Besides Moses, once Moses dies, there's only one person in the entire nation who is allowed to go past that veil. Only he can go past. He's the only one, and he can only go one time a year. That's it. So there's incredible limitation. Like, if that's where God is inside the holy place, there's incredible limitation. You don't have free access. Okay, so then just outside the veil is this place called the holy place. And you know what? Only one person could go inside the holy place, uh, or the most holy place. Only like a handful of people could go inside the holy place. 
Only the priests were allowed to go inside there. And uh, there are these different pieces inside the holy place. They all represent something. So that the altar of incense is there and it represents the prayers of God's people going up before God. But you know what? The priests had to come in and kind of stand and light that incense and make sure that those prayers would go up. The priests came in and there, there was this table that had bread on it. And that bread symbolized that like God was ready to have a meal with his people, that he was like ready to relate to his people. But the only people who got to eat the bread were the priests. They were the only ones who actually got to walk into that place. This lamp is a, a symbol. It's a lampstand. It's got seven different candles on it. Then the, the, the priests would keep the oil lit in there. They would serve God. And that lamp would be a sign of God's presence, right? And, and so the priests would get to walk in there. And this, this holy place would be really like the place you're aware that God wants relationship with his people. But only a handful of people get to go there. Right? Most people don't get to experience that. The place where most people get to spend their time is in this thing called the outer courts. And uh, at the entrance of the tent, there is this laver. At the laver, what, what the priests would do is they would actually have to wash their hands before they would get to perform the main event on the bronze altar. The bronze altar would be the place where sacrifices happened. So almost every Israelite in their experience of worship and what it's like to have a relationship with God spends their time in the outer courts. Most people, the average person, what they get to see, what they get to experience is taking place in this thing called the outer courts. So I kind of want to talk to you about what happens in the outer courts. So just to get an idea, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 29, and we're going to move through it rather quickly. Exodus 29.10 says, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Before the tent of meeting means literally in front of the holy place, right? This is the place where all of the Israelites can gather. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. In verse 11, then you shall kill the bull before the Lord. And then in verse 12, uh, the, so the killing of the bull, okay, so like we all get to, we are regular Israelites, we gather together and what we witness is them kill a bull. And that's like a little gruesome. Like we're not all prepared to stand in a butcher shop and watch what happens in that place, right? But that's kind of what's happening here. But it doesn't stop. Verse 12 says, you shall take part of the blood of the bull and you shall put it on the horns of the altar with your fingers. So what they're doing is they're, they're allowing the blood to drain and as the blood drains, they're putting their hands in the blood and put, kind of take it together and put it in whatever kind of bucket or contraption they have and, and then pick it up and pour it out so that everybody watches the blood be poured out at the base of the altar. And then in verse 13, it says, you shall take the fat that covers the entrails, uh, the long lobe of the liver, the two kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. So this is like getting increasingly more gruesome, right? You're taking pieces of the organs of these animals, and you're lifting them up in front of people for everybody to see. You put them on the altar so that they can be burned. Verse 15 kind of explains some more of this. So, so once the bull is done, by the way, a bull has something like, I want to say, like 10 gallons of blood 
inside of it, right? Massive amount of blood. Um, Verse 15, but you're not done. Then you shall take one of the rams. And then in verse 16, you shall kill the ram and you shall take its blood. So now you're not just pouring out blood, you're now taking the blood and you're throwing it against the altar, right? So you're taking kind of the the blood of this thing, you're covering the altar up and then uh, verse 17, you shall cut the ram into pieces again while everybody is watching, while everybody is gathering together. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 19, that's not it. You shall take the other ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear. So, so right now, just so you know what's happening, what's being described is the consecration of the priests. But the ideas that we get here remain consistent throughout Israelite worship. So, so you're going to take your hand and put it in the blood and you're going to put some of the blood on the right ear of the priest and the right ear of Aaron and his sons. And then you're going to take the rest of the blood of that ram and throw it against the altar. Then verse 21. You shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and on the anointing oil. And so we haven't finished here. But now you're going to take that blood and you're going to sprinkle it on another person. Like you're going to cast it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and their garments with him. Okay, so if I go to scripture with an agenda of being comforted and I play Bible roulette and I end up at this place, I have a problem, right? Because nothing about this scenario is comforting to me, especially me with the heart language that I've been formed in, with understanding like the, the ideas that my culture wants me to have about God. Like nothing in this scenario is comforting. I have no categories for coming to the Bible with an agenda about blood, and yet this describes the regular pattern of worship for the Israelite worshiper. For the, for the average person, this would have been what they experienced. So like, first of all, they recognized a high degree of separation, right? The most holy place is so far away. No person ever has a chance of going in there, right? But somehow that is where God is. Um, and maybe the only, only the high priest gets to go in one time a year. And, and even the holy place is still very separated. There's no chance that the average Israelite is going to get to go in to the holy place. And then on top of that, you have this like this laver, which is kind of ironic, but uh, where they go and wash their hands before they get their hands all bloody with the sacrifice. Uh, they have the sacrifice, right, which is this kind of boundary that says you have to do this in order to maintain relationship with me. You have uh, kind of the exact manner in which the sacrifices are supposed to take place. You have a very restricted sanctuary. You have the veil over the holy place. Like, if you are an average Israelite, one of the things that you realize in your worship at the tabernacle is Yahweh is very separated from me. And then... The second thing that you would have recognized in your regular experience of worship is that this worship is gruesome and bloody. Like it just would have been in front of your face. Like sure, so you can see it, but you know what else? Like it's a sensory experience. You can hear it as the animals are being killed. 
you can smell it because these things don't get washed. Like, the, this is fabric that is covering the, the walls of the tabernacle. This is fabric that, I mean, even if you wash these clothes, the stains stay there, it gathers over time, it gets thick, it gets gunky, and it smells. So this is the regular experience. So let's just take a second, take a step back, and ask a question. Why? Why all the barriers? Why so much blood and death? Like, especially if, especially if God's goal with the people is to have relationship with them. Like, God is going among them so that he can relate to them. Why would there be all of this level of separation and division and blood and death? So, we're going to consider three truths that the tabernacle taught Israel. Number one, it taught Israel that God is holy. God is holy, that he is set apart from everything else. That that there is something so unique about him, so kind of pure and perfect about him, that like the average person cannot get to where he is. And for even one person to get to where he is, it requires an extreme level of sacrifice and cleansing and purification and preparation. Number two, it would have taught that blood is sacred. That the Israelite worshiper would have learned in their practice of worship that blood is sacred. And by the way, this is not just an Israelite thing. Like this is, for some reason, as you look throughout history, this is a code that you can see God has even like embedded into cultures. Like people somehow intuitively recognize throughout history that there is something really unique about blood. And some of those people take that concept and pervert it for different things. But blood is sacred. And Israel was not the only religion that held blood highly. There was kind of this existing principle that God recognized. And he even put it in scripture. In Leviticus 17.11, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Like there is a principle here with blood that is really significant. It's sacred. And then number three, it taught them that the way to God is marked by blood. So I'm in the outer courts, and I'm just observing the straightaway, all the way back to the Holy of Holies. Now, I can't see back there because, again, there's separation. But you know what exists between where I am and where God is? Blood. Everywhere. It's on the walls. It's on the ground. It's on the altar. It's on the priest's garments. The way to God is paved with blood. It's marked by blood. So, so from their perspective, blood covered everything. You have to walk through this blood and death to get to where God is. And for what it's worth, this is a principle that God established with Adam and Eve. Right? In, the, in the garden, he said to them, uh, you shall not eat of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will surely what? Die. So he says, if you sin, death is the cost. And what did they do? They sinned. And they introduced death into creation. So we know that that concept exists already. The price of sin is death. But after that, God makes a literal covering for them. So when they sin, they recognize that they are naked. 
And God asks, how do you know you're naked? Well, we did the thing that you told us not to do. Okay, so God kills an animal to make sure that they can be covered. Right, so the concept is instituted even then there in the garden. So, so every time an Israelite is in the tabernacle, an average Israelite, they're reminded, my sin, our collective sin, it requires death. For God to be among us, things have to die. And, and this tabernacle, this system, it would last for hundreds of years. And time and again, this would be the experience of the average Israelite. As they came to God, as they tried to relate to God, they would have said, he is separate and we have to continue killing things for him to stay with us. This leaves something to be desired, right? Like something feels like it's missing. Like God's goal, like what we have been saying time and again for the last few weeks, God's goal, his work in the world, the thing that he is trying to do is to dwell where people are are. But if I'm an Israelite and I look at God and I recognize for him to stay among us means that he has to stay very separated from us and that we have to keep bringing our animals to him to be killed. So now we as people past Israel, we have the blessing of knowing that the tabernacle is not like the final piece of the story, right? But we recognize that blood and the tabernacle all pointed to something else, something greater. And that's actually what we're going to consider today. All of what happened in the tabernacle, it pointed to something more significant that God was doing. Because you know what? Yes, like there is something to be desired if we stop at the tabernacle. So Hebrews 9.22, this is what it does. It kind of sums up the entirety of the lessons of tabernacle worship. And this is what it says. It says, indeed... Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, so the, the author of Hebrews, what he's doing, is kind of taking all of these ideas of what was happening in tabernacle worship and summing it up for the people who are reading and said, here's the deal. At the end of the day, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So time and again, Sin is only covered with blood. They would have realized that. Time and again, it would have been in front of them. That blood is kind of this purification piece. Time and again, they would have seen that Yahweh is still staying behind the barriers. So what's interesting, there is no uh, forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. So they would have done these things time and time again. But the problem is, is that they would have seen none of it actually gets us to where Yahweh is. Like, why all of this blood and death if none of us gets us, gets us to where he is? Like, we're still stuck on this side of the curtain. We're still locked out from his presence. So then, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And this is where you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Hebrews now. And that's where we're going we're to spend the rest of our time. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. Verse 1. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never make perfect those who draw near. So what this is saying is 
the law instituted sacrifices and processes and said that most of the people in Israel, they're going to spend their time in the outer courts. And uh, you know what? Those things that they see, those things that they witness, they are but a shadow of something else that is happening, something else that is going to happen. In fact, this is how much of a shadow they are. They can't actually do anything to get the people to God. Like those sacrifices, they would be a symbol and a reminder of the significance of blood and how important blood was, but, but they could never actually get the people to where God was. It can never make perfect those who draw near. What it's also saying, what is required for you to get to God is for you to be made perfect. You cannot get there if you are not made perfect. So then verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So what, what he's saying is, you know, if those were sufficient, if they could make perfect, like, they would have stopped offering the sacrifices. Because it would have taken care of what needed to be taken care of. But that was not the case. They kept doing it. And they kept doing it. And they kept doing it. And so in verse 3 it says, But in these sacrifices, there is reminder of sin time and time again. Every year. Verse 4 sums all of this up. And this is what it says. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, so God forms this tabernacle, he forms this system, he forms these processes by which people sacrifice, and the, the main thing, the main experience of the Israelite worshiper is I have to watch my animals be killed time and time again for me to be where God is, for me to be with God. And at the end of the day, what they learned is, yes, like, we obey, we carry out the sacrifices, but, but they observed, like, the blood did not actually take care of their sins. Which is why God was still behind the veil after 3,000 years of sacrifices. Like, so, so if I look at this, if I look at this situation, and I'm kind of standing far back, not having the context that I have right now, I would be inclined to ask, like, is this 3,000-year-old sacrificial system just a farce? Like, is it, is it just kind of pointless? Like, if it didn't actually do anything to get them to where God was, then what could it have been good for? And I hear that kind of perspective. I hear what you're saying, but get this. Is it possible that from the moment of the very first sin, God was planning something so cosmically massive that it would have taken 3,000 years of sacrifices and of building a nation, and of ethical formation, and of, yes, bloody tabernacle worship, to prepare a people for an epic, amazing reality that nobody expected. Is that possible? Hebrews 9.23. So now you're going to go back before chapter 10. Hebrews 9.23 says this. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So when he says the copies of the heavenly things, this is what he's saying. He's saying the tabernacle, 
and all of its parts and all of its pieces and all of its construction, these things were copies, reflections of heavenly realities, but not the real thing. And when it says heavenly, you're inclined to think like somewhere up in the sky. I don't want you to think somewhere up in the sky. I want you to think of a massive cosmic reality that exists, but that we can't see with our eyes right now. Right? So, so in the heavenly place, there are these real things, this real place, and, and the tabernacle represented. It was a copy of those things. The tabernacle was a reflection of a truer reality. And the purification and the blood, it was a symbol of what needed to take place in that truer reality. So Hebrews 9.23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Hebrews 9.24 says, for Christ. So he says, better sacrifice needs to come. That, that these things could not take care of the actual tabernacle and the heavenly reality. There needed to be a better sacrifice. And so in Hebrews 9.24 it says, for Christ. The Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one of Israel, who all scripture has spoken about for centuries, for 3,000 years in their scripture, for Christ, has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true thing. So, So Christ did not enter the physical tabernacle built on the earth, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So picture, like what what the author is trying to do is he is trying to explain, illustrate, help us to understand what is happening when Jesus is dying on the cross. Jesus is up there hanging on the cross and, and this is what's going on. Christ, God made flesh, who is bloodied and battered on a Roman torture device, taking on himself the full weight of God's wrath towards sin. Here's the picture we're given. In his sacrifice, he is walking through the real tabernacle into the outer courts. He walks into the outer court and he takes his own blood and throws it against the altar lets it splatter on the area around the outer courts. He pours out his own blood, takes it, and pours it out at the base of the altar. He becomes death. And death that was like so prevalent, the death that they witnessed time and time again, Israel witnessed at the, at the outside of the tent that they saw, that death that was so prevalent, he becomes that death. And then he bloodied and battered, walks past the first door into the holy place. And then what he does when he gets to that first door, he goes up to the second door, the veil that nobody can walk past, and he pulls open the veil, and he walks into the most holy place. And he blazes a trail for every single person who would come after him. So so the writer kind of takes this and says, uh, and you know what? He's not sacrificed again and again and again and again. Like, it doesn't keep happening. So in Hebrews 9, 26, he says, but as it is, he has appeared 
once for all, appeared. He walked into the presence of the Father on the cross, bloodied and battered once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when Christ shouts out the words on the cross, it is finished, what he is literally saying As he is there, standing before the Father in the real tabernacle, he says to the Father, paid in full. And then he dies. And then the next thing that happens in the physical tabernacle is an earthquake takes place and the veil is torn from top to bottom. And the thing that stayed there for 3,000 years of bloody sacrifice that could not be removed was torn in an instant. Because God himself became the sacrifice that was sufficient to purify us, to make us perfect, to make us clean. So that we, following the one who went before us, Jesus, walking through the pathway of his blood, could enter into the most holy place where God was and actually have a relationship with him. So the main point this morning is this. God required blood throughout the history of Israel. God required blood to prepare us for the blood that he would give. As the story he tells, like as he puts this story out in front of nations and allows this story to be printed throughout history for everybody to see. And everybody's wondering, what is going on with Israel? Why is uh, this blood so significant? God required blood to prepare us for the blood that he would give in Jesus. It's written into the fabric of Israelite worship. And time and time again, this is what they would see. So let's go back to those truths of the, of the tabernacle real quick, the things that they learned. Like, did they learn that God is holy? Yes, absolutely. They learned that. And you know what? Because he is holy, there would only be one blood holy enough to make us clean enough to go into his presence. Yes, they learned that blood is sacred. Like this was written into their worship. Because Christ, one day, would perform the most incredible sacred work by pouring out his blood. The most incredible act of worship for all of us, once and for all, by spilling it. And yes, they learned that the way to God is marked by blood. Because one day, Christ would blaze the trail through the actual tabernacle with his blood. And as we follow him... His blood covers us and makes us perfect. Our sin is taken away and we have full, unabated access to the presence of God. This is what God accomplishes. So we read about the tabernacle in Exodus and it tells us, and it was significant for what it was in Israel's history, but we stand on this side of the cross and what the tabernacle shows us is yes, time and again, God, you could not get to where God was, but because Christ has come, you can get to where God is. Okay, so what? So what? Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Uh, I have the privilege of the so what's just being right there in Scripture. So in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Hebrews 9 and 10, they kind of take all of these realities and talk about them in all of these different ways. It's the summing up of what Jesus accomplished with his blood and his sacrifice. And then there's like a therefore. Verse 19 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... We have three so what's this morning. Number one, therefore draw near to God through Jesus. 
It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want to take this idea and I want to talk to two people this morning, two different people. Number one, I want to talk to the person who does not currently follow Jesus. Right, listen, in, in all of this story of what the Israelites did in the tabernacle, there is embedded in all of it, the gravity is what he would do in order to take it away. God would become flesh in Jesus and suffer and die for our sins. So as explicit as I can make it, if you do not follow Jesus, his blood does not cover you. But goodness, if you actually decide to follow Jesus, if you actually take the step of faith, you have full access to your creator who is longing for relationship with you. So I want to plead with you this morning. If you have not decided to follow Jesus, please take the step of faith. Follow him. Place your trust in him. If you want to do that today, after our service, please find me or find any other person that you see up here on stage. We are ready and willing to help you take that step, but please do not waste any more time not taking the step of faith with Jesus. So that's the first person I want to talk to. The second person I want to talk to is the person who does follow Jesus. Right? I want to let you know you have a privilege that none of the saints in the Old Testament had. You can go to the place that they could not go. You can approach God where he is. Right? And he is ready and willing to like respond to you. He is ready and like you don't have to worry about, gosh, I did that thing yesterday or I don't, like, I don't feel like I'm clean enough or taken care of enough. Like, no, like you are made clean. You have full access. He says you are made perfect by his blood. You're like, I don't feel very perfect. I don't care how you feel. I know that if you follow Jesus, you are clean enough to walk fully into the presence of God right now. So run. Like, go, draw near. Don't waste any more time kind of staying back far away. Go to where he is and spend time with him. Read scripture, understand his heart. Know that as you're reading, he is speaking to you actively. Pray to him, let him know your heart as he shapes your heart. Go deep and let him shape you into the image of Jesus. Number two, therefore, don't give up hope. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, if Yahweh has done all of this for you, if he has put in this much effort and this much planning and this much intentionality throughout the ages for you, if Yahweh gave you his own very son, if Yahweh has fulfilled every promise to his people over the generations, will he not then do everything that he has promised to us New Testament Christians? Like, yes, this world is crazy. Yes, people are sinful. Like, yes, Afghanistan is falling apart right now. And there are Christian brothers and sisters stuck in this place. And they are probably going to die for their faith. All of this is a result of sin. And the promise that we are given is that we are overcomers. We have the promise that extends beyond this world. We have a hope that is guaranteed because God worked throughout ages to put his stamp of his blood on it. God has saved us. God has separated us. God has atoned for us. God has purified us. And God will deal with sin once and for all. It'll be taken care of and we will 
be saved. So 2 Peter 3, 14, and 18, uh, 14 through 18 says this. It says, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, God's promises, his justice for sin, a new heaven and new earth, a resurrection, then be diligent to be found by him. Hold fast your hope without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So, therefore, hold on to the hope. And then finally, number three, therefore, keep encouraging one another. Verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why is this passage about, like, hey, make sure you go to church there? Like, that's, like, that's the summary, right? Like the, this, like, the so what, the final thing that the writer has to say, after all of this amazing stuff about Jesus and what he has, has accomplished, he says, you know, make sure when you are worshiping together that you actually show up. Because he knows that the cares of this world are so enticing that if we don't keep our focus on Jesus, then we will be enticed to love those things more than we love Jesus. He knows that the traumas of this world are so overwhelming that if we don't keep our focus on Jesus and lift one another up in our focus on Jesus, that we will just be crushed by the weight of those overwhelming traumas. Because sin in us is still fighting a war. And that war is seeking to overcome us. If we don't keep our focus on Jesus and allow others to lift us up, then we will be overcome by it. Because we are weak. And we cannot fight this battle on our own. So we continue gathering together so that we can keep each other's focus on Jesus. We need help. We need alignment. We are designed to be encouraged and aligned and strengthened together through consistent, regular worship. So you know what? COVID has given us like a ton of permission to stay distant. To come when we want, to stay at home and watch online and all this stuff. And I I know that there are still some who need to stay home and watch online. I get that. But our worship together is too important to stay away from forever. As Christians, we are built to be in this regular pattern. So what I'm going to do now we're going to transition to communion together because one of the practices that the Lord gave to us to do when we gather together is to remember his sacrifice, what he paid for our sakes. So we have bread and juice in here. The bread represents his broken body and the juice represents his shed blood that he poured out as he blazed the trail before us and walked right into the Holy of Holies. So we take this to remember that we have full access to where God is right now. So, uh, so we're going to take communion together. This is what we're going to do. If you are not a Christian and you're with us this morning, uh, you're not a believer, we'd ask that you, this is kind of like a proclamation of what we believe, of what takes us to where God is. If you can't make that proclamation with us, I'd ask that you would not partake with us, but we're really glad that you're here. Uh, if you are a Christian and you're visiting from another church, or you're, like this is an open communion. You can participate with us. We would be really glad to have you do that this morning. Uh, we're going to partake together, but before we do that, we're going to take a moment of silence and we're going to reflect. And this is what I want you to do in your reflection. Uh, for the first few centuries of the church, this practice was called the Eucharist. Eucharist means gratefulness. The feast of gratefulness. 
So this is what I want you to do as we reflect. And if you don't have one of these at the back of the sanctuary here, there, as we take this moment of silence, there is a basket that you could take one of these from. It's underneath the black box back there. But uh, as we reflect, I just want you to be silent and be grateful for what it is that Jesus has accomplished for you. So Alliance Bible Church, let's take this chance to be silent together.